I want to say good morning to everyone who is here, everyone who's out in the lobby, uh, everyone who is in the refinery across our campus, and those of you who are joining us online. We're so glad uh, that you are worshiping with us as we have given praise to the Lord, and now as we're going to, to open his word and listen to his voice. And we are in First Peter in our series, Hope for Exiles, and I want to encourage you, if you will, to go ahead and get your Bibles open to chapter 4. We're going to be studying verses 1 through 11. But before we begin to do that, I want to say a couple of words about this place that we find ourselves today as a nation. And of course, everyone knows we had an election. And this week, yesterday, we of course received news that our election may be coming to a conclusion. And there's still more to come, to be sure, and it actually may take a lot more time uh, before it's all over and all done. But whether we have hours or whether we have days or weeks left, this election is going to come to an end. And when it's over, after all of the tweets and the posts and the articles and the punditry and after being exposed uh, to this, what seems like an unending stream of advertising and and outrage... (laughs) You know, after all of it's over, uh, I want to make sure that we as God's people do not forget some things that will still be true no matter what happens. We must never forget, as God's people, that God will still be on his throne and he will be working all things according to the counsel of his will. God will be our refuge and our strength, a very present hope in trouble God's dominion will still be an everlasting dominion and his kingdom will still endure from generation to generation. We must remember that our God is not small and his providential care cannot be stymied. The Bible says, God's word says, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he chooses. And not a bird will fall to the ground, not a hair from your head apart from your Father in heaven. The word of God says our God does whatever he pleases. You see, there is no guarantee in God's word, whether for good or bad, regarding the future of this nation in which we live, the United States of America. But there is an unbreakable promise that Christ will build his church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So whatever happens tomorrow, all the promises of God will still be true, still be yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord will still know those who are his. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. See, we don't have to wonder about God's priorities because each new day God will continue to exalt above all things his name and his word. And God will continue to oppose the proud and give grace to the humble and the poor in spirit, the mournful, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the the pure, the peacemakers, the persecuted. God says they will be blessed. And the wicked will reap what they sow because God cannot be mocked. See, the truth is, and we can forget it in a time like this, it doesn't matter 
in the end, who controls the presidency or who controls the Senate. The Great Commission will still be accomplished through God's people loving the world, opening God's word and teaching people what the word has to say, sharing the gospel with our neighbors. And it's still going to be true. As for man, his days will be like grass because the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. See, whichever party occupies the White House or the governor's mansion, we still have a call to serve our God. And you've heard me say this before. We are not the people of the elephant or the people of the donkey. We are of the tribe of the lamb. And parties will come and go, but Jesus Christ reigns forever. The Bible says on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written. King of kings, Lord of lords. And there is only one name given among man whereby we must be saved. And one day, one day, maybe soon, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Politics matter. Policies matter. Politicians matter. Presidents matter. They they really do. But we as God's people must never forget that some things matter much, much more. Some things matter eternally more. God is God and we are his people. Nothing ever changes that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then we'll begin studying together. Father God, as we open your word, we submit our hearts to you. We submit our wills to you, Father. We say to you as we listen to your word, you are God and we are your people. Teach us, guide us, challenge us, convict us, Lord. Open our hearts today, we pray, to hear and obey what you tell us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are talking this morning about the exile's choice. And what I want you to see as we study this passage in in 1 Peter 4 is that uh, we have a choice as exiles. And the choice comes down to this, whether or not we choose to be different. Whether or not we will choose to live different lives in a culture that rejects our God and that sees God's people as strange. Now, on kind of a little lighter note, we, we've all known people who are different, right? Just, how many of you know someone? You're thinking of someone right now, and they're kind of different. Feel free. You can raise your hand, you know. Um, how many are, uh, of you right now are sitting next to someone who's kind of different? Don't raise your hand on that one. Some of you go, well, I'm the different one. I know it, you know. Um, uh, but there are people who are different. And I was reminded this week of one of my favorite different people And some of you know about him, some of you have forgotten about him or never heard of him. His name is Yogi Berra. And and Yogi Berra played for the New York Yankees from 1946 to 1963. He's actually one of the greatest catchers in Major League Baseball history. He, He won 10 World Series rings. No one else has ever done that. And today... Most people know him not for his baseball abilities, but for uh, his unique way of expressing himself. 
Um, he said the craziest things. They were so different. In fact, I'm going to share a few of them with you. These are some things that Yogi Berra actually said, and I hope that uh, you will uh, not be confused when you hear them. But the first one was this. He said, you can observe a lot by watching. Okay, yeah, I, I guess so. And, and this next one is, uh, 90% of baseball is mental. The other half is physical. Some of you, some of you are like, Okay, I'm not sure about that. Um, then this one, he said, the future ain't what it used to be. And I love this one. He said, a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. Kind of a different guy, Yogi is. Uh, there's a few more of these, and these aren't all. He said, always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't go to yours. Just in case you're wondering, that's why I do your funerals, Okay. One time there was a popular restaurant in St. Louis, which is where he was from, and he said, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. And then he told someone who was coming to his house one time, if you arrive at a fork in the road, take it. And then the last one I'll share with you today, it just kind of sums it all up. He said, I really didn't say everything I said. Well, that was Yogi. Yogi was kind of different. But here's the point that I want you to see today. Peter has been clear from the beginning of this letter. I hope, I hope it's really sinking in deeply that we are supposed to be different. We're God's people. We are elect exiles. And that means we don't belong here. This world is not our home. And we need to accept and we need to live in that reality. Some of us have forgotten this, but for 2,000 years, this is reality. People in the world have seen Christians as different. And we are living in a time where this is becoming more and more clear, more and more. Our culture sees us as strange. Many in our culture see us as a danger to people in our society, a, a threat to the well-being of society. And Peter's calling us to accept that. See, for Peter, a central part of what it means to be different as a Christ follower is it means you're going to suffer. And we've been talking about that. He calls us to live beautiful lives even when we suffer. Uh, just to kind of recall some of what we've seen in chapter 1, you may remember he told us to rejoice in suffering. In chapter 2, he said that we are to endure suffering from unjust human institutions. In chapter 3, he said to do good and not repay evil for evil. He said to be willing to suffer for righteousness sake. And then last week we saw chapter 3 end with this discussion of Jesus himself suffering and how he suffered once for all. And Peter said, Jesus suffered because he suffered on our behalf. We can ourselves as his people endure suffering. And as we're going to see this week and next week, 1 Peter 4, it's all about suffering. And Peter wants us to see that in our sufferings, we have a choice. That's what we're looking at today. We have a choice when we suffer, and that choice determines our joy. That choice determines how God will or will not be able to use us. And here's the choice, if I could state it this way. Will we sin or will we serve? When you suffer, you're always going to face that choice. Will you sin? in your suffering? Or will you serve? I want to walk us through these verses. We see this first choice in verses 1 through 6, and I want to characterize it this way. This choice is we must stop sinning. Stop sinning. 
The first choice is the choice to stop sinning. And I think you can understand this. When we suffer, it is very easy to move into sin, isn't it? I mean, as we suffer, we hurt. And as we hurt, we, we often feel sorry for ourselves. And we often think we need to do something to make it up to ourselves. A lot of times when we suffer, we feel alone. And so that leads us down paths often that are sinful. We wonder if God has abandoned us. Sin is very easy uh, to fall into when we are suffering. Let me begin with what Peter says in verses 1 and 2. He writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And here's what I want you to notice. Peter begins chapter 4 with the same reality he ended chapter 3 with. Christ suffered in the flesh. Jesus, he reminds us, died for our sins on the cross for us. Therefore, and this is the key phrase, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You might want to underline or circle that phrase. This is the key to this entire passage, actually. We are to learn as Jesus' people to think the way Jesus thought. And what Peter says that means right here is that we need to be willing to suffer. I mean, just ask, are you willing to suffer? Are you willing? Uh, he says, arm yourselves. That means like soldiers preparing for battle. Believers should be preparing to suffer. And he gives a couple of reasons for this. The first is that Christ suffered in the flesh. So this is telling us we choose suffering if necessary. Why? Our master, our Lord and Savior did. Do you remember that suffering didn't just happen to Jesus? He chose it. John 10, 18 says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And so we can put it this way. We're willing to suffer because Christ suffered. And that makes us different, right? Our culture doesn't think anybody should suffer. Our culture abhors suffering. Pain is something that is always to be avoided in our culture. Comfort is the goal. That's what's normal. But Christ's followers are not to be normal. We're to be different. We live in a time right now, this isn't in my notes, but I just want to say this. Uh, some of us use the word safety far too often. Safety has become a central belief in our culture. And most people that you live with, maybe even some of you, have come to believe that it is your fundamental right to be safe. And I simply want to tell you, the Word of God never says anything about that. Now, I'm not saying we should make it unsafe for people. But I am saying, if you think that your right is to be saved, then you do not understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus never called any of us to safety. He called us to die. He called us to suffer. And if we're going to follow him, we must be willing to suffer. Why? Fundamentally, because our Lord and Savior, Jesus, suffered for us we must follow in his steps. Secondly, these two verses also tell us that we, we, we can suffer because we know suffering can bring benefits. Now, we don't like to think about this, but it's true. We all know it. There are some things in your life you would have never learned if you hadn't suffered, right? Right? 
Who's willing to raise your hand and say, yep, I know it. If I hadn't had this pain in my life, if I hadn't experienced this suffering in my life, I never would have learned some things. How many of you have discovered in your life when everything's going great for your spiritual life tends to kind of drift? How many of you have noticed that sometimes when there's pain and suffering in your life, you get closer to Jesus? This is what we're talking about here. Suffering can bring benefits. And Peter says in, in, in these two verses, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So willingness to suffer, what it is showing us, this is what Peter says, is it's showing us that we have broken with a life of sin. In other words, we'd rather suffer than sin. Is that you? Would you rather suffer than sin? This doesn't mean that we never sin. Ceased from sin means that we've repented and we've turned from sin. It means the power of sin has been severed in our lives. And Peter's making the point that, that should be going on in our lives. The longer we, we live in the flesh, in the body, the more we see the terrible impact of sin, the less sin should a, appeal to us. And that's what he's really talking about in verse 2. As we grow in holiness... As we live longer with Jesus, the more we see our sin as something we don't want to run back to anymore. Sin is not a tenable option for us anymore. And suffering helps us to figure that out. See, living as an exile means we live to do God's will. And you'll notice this contrast here between God's will and human passions. We choose God's will over human passions, the things that we would want to do. We trust God, his word, and his will over against what we desire. And that requires a mind that is armed with truth, a mind that has learned how to think. And I don't want you to miss that we are armed and protected in suffering when we think a certain way. And some of us are vulnerable to suffering because we think about suffering in an unbiblical way. Peter reminds us that to align with God's will for our lives, our thoughts must be changed, our thoughts must be corrected. And he, he talks a lot in this letter about right thinking. Have you noticed that? In fact, I want to challenge you in your life groups this week. That would be a great thing to explore. Go back through the first three chapters of Peter and look at all the times that he talks about thinking and how we are to think. It is so crucial. It just highlights this reality about spiritual change in our lives. Change happens, follow this. Change happens when right thinking begins to transform the passions of our heart. It starts with right thinking and that leads to right feelings and then that results in right actions. In other words, it's head, heart, hands. And some of us, haven't changed the way we feel and therefore we haven't changed the way we act because we haven't changed the way we think and we're not thinking according to the word of God. We haven't gotten the word of God in our hearts and in our minds to transform it. It all comes back to the wrong way of thinking. We need to have a different way of thinking and when we get that different way of thinking, it leads, it leads to otherworldly joy, a, a love for God that no suffering can defeat. Some of you know this name, Richard Wormbrand. He was a Romanian pastor who suffered imprisonment. He suffered torture under the Romanian communist regime for 14 years. He was the founder of this organization that some of you are aware of called the Voice of the Martyrs. I came across something recently from his book, Tortured for Christ, it just blew me away. And it highlights this way of thinking that is so important for us, I believe, today. Here's what he said. 
It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. That just blew me away. That kind of joy in Christ, that kind of worship, that valuing of Jesus above all things, that Jesus is better than being free of pain. That's what leads to what Peter says next in verses 3 and 4. He says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The NIV states this even more pointedly. It says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Evidently, what was going on to these people Peter is writing to is that the suffering they were facing was tempting them to fall back into their own old lifestyle. And Peter says there is one word for us when we are faced with that temptation, and that word is enough. He says you need to make a decision that the world will find to be very different, abnormal, and that decision is this. I've sinned enough. I've sinned enough. It's enough. So stop sinning. Suffer if you must, but don't return to sin. Choose to suffer over sin. And you just arm yourself with this thought that any amount of past sinning is enough. You know, some of you, because of your life circumstances, maybe it was like this. You kind of sinned just a little before you met Christ. Well, if you sin just a little, that's enough. Others of you said, oh, man, (laughs) I sinned a lot. Some of you would say, I sinned a lot. I sinned a lot for a lot of years. And if that's you, it's enough. It's enough. You can never sin so little that you can say, I need some more time to sin. Peter says, arm yourself with this thought. Whatever time it is that you've spent sinning, that's enough. Make the break. Choose the will of God and suffer as a result of that if you must. Now, the specific suffering that Peter has in mind right here is mentioned in verse 4. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They, they slander you. They, they, they try to make you look like a fool, but Peter says you are to embrace that like Jesus did, if it is God's will, rather than to choose sin, because he says the time that you have spent in sinning, whatever that is, it's enough. Now, you've probably noticed this in your life. When you don't join in with other people in doing things that are sinful, they typically have two reactions. And the first one is surprise. They're surprised that you don't join in. They, oh, you you don't want to come with me to the orgy? Okay. Do they say this? Okay, catch up with you later. That's fine. You do you. You live your truth. That's not the way most people behave when you don't join them. Have you ever stopped to think about why that might be so? 
You, you have probably had it happen in your life where someone asks you to do something that's wrong and all you say is no. You don't criticize them. You don't even have a tone of judgment with them. You just say no thank you and they get upset. Have you ever wondered why? Um, if you start to think about it, I think you begin to understand. Here's the reality for every person who's ever lived apart from Christ They live in a reality where they have to continually tell themselves, I'm not that bad, because their their life, their view of themselves is founded on the idea that I'm basically a pretty good person. Have you ever noticed that? How many of you have talked to some people, and they're horrible people, but they tell you, I'm a good person. You go, no, you're not. You're horrible. (laughs) Everyone knows you're horrible. Oh, I'm a pretty good person. That's how everyone wants to think. And when you... Don't join them in their sin. You threaten that just by your actions. And they're surprised at first, but it quickly will turn to maligning. Have you ever had someone say to you when you say, no, thank you? They say to you, do you think you're better than me? They speak against you because your action pronounces a silent judgment on them whether you intend it to or not. And it's kind of interesting. Did you notice this? This list of sins is connected to some very familiar things that we know in our culture. It's connected to sexuality. It's connected to drunkenness. And it's connected to sexuality and drunkenness in large groups. That's what the list is about, right? I mean, it's kind of like a a cocktail, if I could put it this way, of immorality, alcohol, and parties. And it's interesting to note that this kind of life was common in Peter's day, just as it is in ours. Sensuality is a word that just speaks of unrestrained behaviors and attitudes about sexuality. Passions are about evil cravings and lustful desires. Drunkenness, of course, is the excessive use of alcohol. And then orgies and drinking parties, put those together because these are social gatherings where immorality and alcohol consumption is out of control. Now, one uh, dictionary called these binge parties. And then lawless idolatry is kind of a summary term for this list. And it's just about the godless orientation of these gatherings. And, And you'll begin to understand what was going on here when you know that these sin issues back in Peter's day were often connected to large social gatherings, were often connected to cultural holidays, just like they are in our day. You could maybe think of it like celebrating the 4th of July or Halloween. And by not participating in these sin issues, by even the holidays themselves, these exiles in choosing to follow Christ were making themselves stand out. They were, they were put, marking themselves as different. And other people would say, everybody does this. Who are you to think that you don't need to do this? Why don't you join us in this? Have you ever noticed that people that say there should be no judgment, that people are always saying, you do you, you live your truth. If you don't do what they do, they get upset. And that's what's happening here. Uh, One of the things that was going on is that they had trade guilds uh, where groups of workers in a particular area of work, sort of, kind of like our unions today, um, where they had particular gods that were like patron gods to their, their line of work. And so there was, 
There was worship involved with doing this job because you had to worship this God so he would take care of all the people who did this job. And that, of course, turned into parties where there was alcohol and there was sex and a lot of both of those things. It was just a way of life. And so if you were a member of a trade guild where everybody did these things and you don't want to do those things, you just want to do your job, you stand out. And people will ostracize you and people will malign you and you will suffer. So how do you stand against that? That's what Peter says in the next couple of verses. Verse five, he says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. These two words are given to encourage us. And they encourage us in this way. Peter reminds us there's a coming day of judgment. And so when you suffer and when people malign you, when people ostracize you, you can live as an exile with that future day in mind. One day, the just judge will judge, will hold everyone to account. And so therefore, we're able to bear with the temporary shame of being different. The temporary shame of being maligned because we are looking to a future day when God will make all things right. You are to live for that day. Some of you are wondering about this thing of preaching the gospel to the dead, and I think the answer to that is real simple. It's not about people after they die, they get to hear the gospel again. The Bible totally contradicts that in other places. I think you can resolve this by adding the word now. The people who are now dead And actually the NIV and a number of other translations do that. What this is talking about is people who heard the gospel when they were alive, but since that time, after they trusted Christ, they've died. And Peter is just making that contrast between those people who have received new life through trusting Christ, even though they're dead now, and people who one day will be judged because they haven't trusted Christ. So when you put all this together as elect exiles, we suffer. It's a reality, it's an inevitability, but in our suffering, we have a choice. Stop sinning. Don't go back to your old way of life. And I want to, before we leave this, just say something I think is very important. You know, I know we, we especially have in our services right now a number of our students, and I, I'm thinking about you in particular, but not just you. Some of us as adults are in the same place. And here's your reality. This is where you are right now. You're like on the edge. You're on the edge of going back or going into something that you know is wrong. And you're justifying it. You're rationalizing it. You're excusing it. And part of the reason is if you don't do this, if you don't go over this edge, there are people that you you kind of live with and hang with and they're going to criticize you and they're going to shame you. They're going to malign you. They're going to call you some things and, and you don't want to suffer. Peter is saying to you, whether you're young or whether you're a lot older, and you really should know a lot better, he is saying to you, back away. Stop sinning. Don't go back. It's not worth it. Choose to suffer rather than to sin. And know that the just judge will one day make all things right. That's the exile's choice. 
The second choice we see is in verses 7 through 11. And, and Peter moves here from how we relate to the outside world, the pagan world, to how we live within the body of believers. And the choice here is start serving. When you suffer, see it as an opportunity to serve. And in these verses, Peter gives us four essential ways to serve. He says these are the things we should give our lives to while we live as sojourners and exiles on earth. Here's what verse 7 says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer. So Peter's writing. He's writing to people who are suffering, people who've been taken advantage of, men and women who, who don't, don't see any relief in sight. And He's reminding us that sometimes it takes suffering to make us aware of the shortness of life, to cause us to look at eternity. You may be reading those words, end of all things, and you're kind of wondering, okay, how does that make sense? Because Peter wrote this like almost 2,000 years ago. I mean, uh, we're still waiting for the end of all things, right? Well, here's something you need to understand uh, when you read the Bible. We tend to think in terms of days and weeks and months and years and decades and centuries and millennia and eons. But God thinks in terms of Jesus when he thinks of history. It's all about Jesus. It's how he sees history. There's the first coming where Jesus came and he lived and then he died and then God raised him from the dead. He now is ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is our Savior. He is the Lord of the universe. And then one day he's going to come again. And he's going to judge the living and the dead. And what he says is that since Jesus has died and risen and ascended, we are now in the last phase of human history. This is the end from Jesus' first coming until Jesus' second coming. And we don't know when the end of the end will come, but we do know that the end of the end is coming when Jesus comes back. And so we will all one day give an account to God who is the just judge, and we live with the recognition that whatever time we have here on this earth is so very brief, so short in comparison to eternity. And so therefore, knowing all of that, we reverse engineer our lives, and we live for the last day. We live for the end because the most important day of your life is the last day. The end of all things is at hand. And we should, with that in mind, serve. So how do we serve with that reality in mind? The first thing that Peter refers to is what I want to call alert prayerfulness. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And you'll notice this contrast. Just a couple verses ago, he's talking about this wild, out-of-control, pagan lifestyle. We're not to live like this. We are to be sober-minded, self-controlled, alert, under control, and focused so that we can pray. Because if we aren't like that, we can't pray, right? I mean, if you're not living like that, what kind of life do you have? It's probably a train wreck. I mean, negative consequences all over the place. You're living out of control. You're just living in the moment. You can't pray when that's going on. But Peter says, if you live the way I'm telling you to, you'll be able to pray. You'll be able to talk to the Father. And you can pray not only for yourself, but other people as well. He says, he says prayers. You notice the plural there? This is like ongoing, repeated acts of prayer. And this means... We serve by taking prayer seriously, by, by lifting up needs in our lives to the Father, by lifting up the needs of others uh, to the Father. Because prayer is an essential act of discipleship. 
And so we ask God to work and move in the remaining time that we have. We, we depend on God now because we know the time is short and we need his grace to be faithful. We need him to give us strength to follow him. We pray. And we need his strength to do the things that are coming next. The second thing is we are to love one another. Verse 8 says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, what we can take from this is that um, within the body of believers, there will be a multitude of sins that drive us crazy. Is there anybody in this church family, they just drive you crazy? Don't say amen, please. Just kind of keep that to yourself. But it's true, right? I mean, I hate to tell you, but some of you, you drive me crazy. You know, I don't have anybody in mind. Um, Not really. If I did, I wouldn't say. But it's just reality of living with other fallen people in a fallen world, right? Stuff happens. We drive each other crazy. What do we need to have in that? We need love for one another. In fact, I'll call it deep love for others. Uh, This word deep, it speaks of intensity and determination. And I'm taking that word from the word translated earnestly, which is a Greek word that literally means straining. One picture of this, it would be used to describe an athlete that's straining to reach the tape at the finish line, trying to get there first, giving it all they have, giving 100%. That's how we love. I was reminded this week of a woman at my last church. We'll call her Jane. She had a deep emotional hurt, been deeply wounded. She just couldn't forgive. And she had a friend in our church that loved her deeply. And this friend began to pray on Jane's behalf, in Jane's presence, for the person who had hurt Jane. And over time, the love of that friend covered the deep hurt of that sin against Jane. You know it, don't you? Love covers a multitude of sins. This is how we serve one another. We, through the love of Christ in us, we cover over the offenses against us. We don't let them divide us. Third, verse nine says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So we'll call this gracious hospitality. And it could kind of seem strange if you think about it in the context. It's like this. The end of all things is at hand. So bake cookies. What? Uh, but you know, hospitality is a really big deal in the Bible. It's all the way through the pages of Scripture. It was a really big deal. It still is in Eastern cultures in general. Um, Hospitality matters. And even in our context today, if you stop to think about it, you would understand that hospitality is often inconvenient, right? Hospitality is also often expensive. It it, it impacts our schedules. It impacts our comfort. It impacts our wallets. I mean, we have to prepare extra food. Maybe we have to change the sheets on a bed. We have to open up a lot of time in our schedule to minister to other people. So why might we grumble? By the way, this word grumble is translated from a Greek word that's pronounced gongusmos. It just sounds like grumbling, right? Let's just say that because it's kind of good sometimes to get this out, you know, and also you can learn another language. You can tell somebody today. I I learned Greek at church today. So say it with me. Gongusmos. Let's do it again. Gongusmos. You know, 
You're going to have a great opportunity during this week sometime to talk to your spouse and you're going to tell them, stop gongusmos. Right? And you'll enjoy that. They won't, but you will. Uh, but we, we grumble. Why do we grumble? Well, I think part of the reason we do sometimes is in our culture, we often confuse hospitality with entertainment. And some of you, you don't think you have to be hospitable because you don't have this gift of entertaining. You don't have the, the, the sense of how to decorate and you don't cook well or anything like that. It has nothing to do with that. You know, entertainment is about a host. Hospitality is about those who are served. And the way we get past the grumbling, here's the key. We remember how gracious and how hospitable God has been to us. And therefore, we are motivated to serve and love others that way. I mean, think about it. How can we grumble when a feast of forgiveness has been laid out for us through the cross by our Father? Here's the fourth thing. It's in verses 10 and 11. Peter writes, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And the fourth way is faithful gift-based service. You'll notice in verse 10, this is tied back to hospitality. And it just reminds us when, when, when we remember God's grace to us and we regard that everything we have as a, a stewardship, it is not something we own, then we are more likely, far more likely to share our lives. It is God's varied grace. In fact, it's not only just your stuff that you sometimes have a hard time sharing. You need to remember that everything you have is a gift from God. I was just remembering that song we sang right before I came up here. It's your breath in our lungs. Why don't you just take a deep breath right now? You just breathe God's air. It's always God's air. It's a way of reminding us that everything we have, everything, absolutely everything is his. And we are only the recipients of it by his grace. It's a gift. And we should serve in that way. What gifts do you have? And God wants you to serve with them. You know, it can seem kind of difficult to serve in a season like this one but you still have a responsibility to serve. You still have a responsibility to steward God's very grace to you. Verse uh, 11 moves beyond this. It talks about you know, things like whoever, whatever your gifts are. So uh, whoever teaches, whoever serves, whoever has extra money they can share, whoever sings. I mean, whatever the gifts are, we are called to use those on behalf of others. And we do it by the strength God supplies. In other words, we rely on God's power to serve and speak. See, we, we come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and we receive the Holy Spirit who enables us to use God's gifts for God's glory and with God's power. And, and that's where this you know, all ends up. God gives the gifts. God provides the strength. Therefore, God gets the glory. 
that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, Jesus is the one who gets the glory when we as exiles make the choice that he calls us to make. When we make the choice to stop sinning and start serving. In fact, if you think about these last verses, doesn't Jesus Christ embody these all perfectly? He was always sober-minded and alert in prayer, even when his disciples were falling asleep. Jesus covered over a world full of sins by his sacrificial death on the cross. Remember 1 Peter 2, 23, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And he loves forgiving our sins. And then what about hospitality? Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross, I will go and I will prepare a place for you, right? He has welcomed us into his family, into his kingdom. We were outsiders. He made us insiders. And then faithful stewardship. Jesus taught with authority and he served faithfully. I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus has brought us in to a relationship with God. He's given us everything we have and he's shown us how to live the way he wants us to live. So will you choose to follow him? Stop sinning. Start serving and know the joy that comes from being an exile, an elect exile. Would you bow your heads as we pray?